HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and heritage. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. Hey, hey, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, and this is Eat Your Words. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. Um, so today's episode is about a fascinating book that delves deep into this topic that, you know, I've kind of been casually interested in um, for many years. So this would be cellular agriculture, which is otherwise known as, perhaps less appetizingly, lab-grown meat or cell-cultured meat, or perhaps a little bit more appetizingly as clean meat. So let's just say it's gone through a few different marketing evolutions to speak nothing yet of the science. But it's it's a topic that, you know, maybe you've heard about years ago, years ago and we're like, huh. And and maybe you're thinking now like, yeah, whatever happened to that? And uh, when are we going to be seeing it in the supermarket, you know, alongside the other kind of alternative meat products that are making a big splash all over the news? So my guest today has had a front row seat to all the action in a high stakes drama of this burgeoning business. And he shares it all in his new book called Billion Dollar Burger, which just came out last month. 
Um, he is a reporter for Quartz, formerly also at Politico, and he has been covering the business and technology of food for quite some time. Also, he is one of the few people to have really tasted cellular agriculture created meat so far. So really, really pleased to welcome to the program, Chase Purdy. Hi. Hey. <laughs> thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. And where in the world are you right now, Chase? I am uh, cloistered up in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> so, not too far from here. So, enjoying the hot, hot summer <laughs> right <Yeah>, now. Yeah, <laughs> maybe 98 degrees today. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, man, but congratulations. This is, um, this is your first book, right? Yes, yes, first book. And, uh, it, you know, we were just saying that it's it's a crazy time for books to come out, but I hope that you've been enjoying the the launch for what it's worth so far. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, honestly, the, the writing and reporting was really fun, but I have to say, like, every time that I do sort of have the opportunity to talk to people about it, the questions never end, and they're all very, hmm. very interesting. I think because everyone has such a personal relationship with food, they mm. are, you know, they immediately have like lots of questions in their mind because this will ultimately be something that we have to think about putting in our mouths. So of course mm -hmm. we have questions. Yeah. I mean, I love that your, your book, it's like, it's very, very breezy. Like you can turn the pages. It's, it's, it feels like a, like an action like novel it's like a, it's it's really entertaining but um towards the end and I, i'm just skipping ahead right now i love how you talk about how you know your attitude on meat and you know your thoughts on cooking have have kind of changed in the course of reporting um can you tell us a little bit about that yeah definitely so you know i think that for me i had you know, really developed, I mean, I guess this just really dives into the personal really quickly, but, um, <laughs> you know, I came out of the closet, moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, to start working at Politico and kind of dove into throwing dinner parties as a way of building community for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and these were very often like very queer, heavy dinner parties. And so cooking and using food to sort of express myself and to create this community became a major thing and they started happening weekly. And at that time, like meat was very much on the menu. Um, mm -hmm. It's such a great vehicle for seasoning and, you know, for a long time, I think, and even still today, obviously meat, especially in America, is like the sort of star player on the dinner plate. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, and I think along with lots of other people, like environmental concerns around meat production kind of, you know, really created a lot of ethical questions around whether or not I should be eating meat uh, as much as I had been. And, and that kind of, I got myself into this sort of mental lurch where I didn't know whether or not like I could even make dinner party meals with mm -hmm. meat um, or without meat. Um, okay. You know, who I was just wasn't equipped to be like marching vegetables onto dinner guest plates. And, and I find, kind of felt a little bit lost. And this was around <laughs> the same time that I started reporting on cellular agriculture for uh. the first time. And um, and so that kind of played into like the reporting um, as I, you know, moved ahead in my career covering food. At the same time, I was increasingly having conversations with friends who 
you know, it was actually just three couples, but they were close enough that they really left an imprint on me. And they were starting to question whether or not, and including, you know, a couple, few couples said, like, we're not going to have children because we don't think that it's ethical to bring kids into this world that's going to be so shaped by climate change. So I had this, like, weird confluence of, like, my own personal, like, approach to, like, not knowing what to do with my food from an ethical point of view. I had friends who were, like, choosing not to maybe have children because of, like, an ethical point of view. It all kind of centered around, you know, climate. And those sort of crashed into the reporting. And that's kind of, I think, you know, at the very base level, that kind of is at the the bedrock of what this book is based off of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, these are all choices that we make when we decide to have dinner or lunch or whatever. Um, So I love that you shared that. Um, And I love how uh, the beginning, the, the sort of first chapter of your book, you really drop a lot of facts. So, I mean, for anyone who kind of wasn't... Um, you know, clued into, you know, never been a vegan, you know, never, never really kind of considered too much, although it's kind of hard to not hear like, you know, meatless Mondays and like these trends of like eat less meat. Um, sure. Uh, I I love how you just, you know, have a lot of facts that, um, are, are really striking. So, you know, there's the inherent wastefulness, you write, of animal agriculture, where it takes let's see, about six pounds of animal feed to produce one pound of beef or 3.5 pounds of feed for one pound of pork or two pounds for a single pound of chicken. And, you know, that's just, uh, speaks to, you know, the inherent, uh, resources that go into producing meat when you could be feeding people with that you know, feed. Yeah. You know, I think it's, I mean, it's still interesting. And by the way, you said you introduced the facts so quickly, if I remember correctly, that might even just be on page seven, sort of like setting the stage for to understand. But, you know, we don't, I don't think, I mean, I might be jumping to conclusions here, but I've never really thought about until working on this book, like just the, the basic principle of like growing something to cycle it through something to get something. (laughs) And whenever you start to realize like, oh, wow, like we're using all these resources, uh, both energy and water and land and time to pump lots of stuff through an organism to get less protein. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's a different kind of protein, but it's, it is interesting. And it does, I think, kind of illustrate pretty quickly that this is kind of wasteful. Um, You know, and I think, and I think that that's kind of also, you know, it, and I think it sort of sets up a stake pretty early on, like, we should be thinking about this. Right. Yes. Yes. I love that. And, and you know, hence, you know, you jump into, uh, you set the stage in 2013. So, um, and this is when uh, you first tried, uh, uh, actually, no, wait, this is when a big sort of, um, yeah, a big uh tasting tasting was a public tasting of cellular agriculture produced right. meat uh what you report on um took place yeah uh, t- that, tell us uh, yeah yeah sort of like a global moment i mean npr reported on it new york times uh all these like major media outlets but 2013 is really the year that uh cell cultured meat lab grown meat whatever you want to call it i use cell cultured because i feel like mm-hmm. it's sort of scientific and straightforward um 
But it's the year, 2013 was the year that this kind of splashed into the global scene. It became something that was more part of, it like introduced this concept to the public imagination. And it's when this Dutch scientist, uh, Dr. Mark Post, uh, who runs his own company now called Mosa Meat, but at the time he was a University of Maastricht professor. Um, he, um, yeah, he went to London with his team and they, on a stage that was, you know, recorded on video, media there, uh, tasted the world's sort of first uh, cell-cultured beef patty, which was just kind of um, beef, it's like basically... Uh, muscle from a cow that had been painstakingly pieced together. It cost about that single patty about three hundred and thirty thousand dollars at that point in time, <laughs> um, and they tasted it. And that's sort of the moment that sort of the world got its first look at something that might be possible someday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Mosa meat. That's where Mark Post is right now. Um, and you notice, you mentioned later on that uh, it is run by, you know, this company is run mostly by meat eaters. Mark Post himself is not a vegan, um, but he's doing this out of concern for food security. Right, right. You know, especially when you start looking at the companies that are outside of the United States, the interest in growing cell cultured meat has much more to do with food security and environmental mm-hmm. concerns, which are sort of interlinked. When you look closely at the American cell-cultured meat companies and cell-cultured fish companies, a lot of those sort of popped up out of the vegan movement. Right. Uh, they're very much, you know, the one that's featured most heavily and prominently in the book, it's a company called Just. It's formerly known as Hampton Creek. Um, that, you know, the CEO of that company, Josh Tetrick, who's sort of the primary character and vehicle in this book, uh, he sort of professes outright, like, I'm in this for animal welfare. I'm glad that it mm-hmm. has other other applications, but I'm here to try to put a massive dent in the 65 billion land animals that we kill every year to, to eat meat and the, you know, one to two trillion fish that we kill every year to eat fish. Mm-hmm. So different philosophies, but they're both fighting, or they're both, many companies are fighting towards this a similar outcome, which is cell, wait, how do you call it again? Cell-cultured meat. (laughs) Cell-cultured. I keep wanting to say cellular. Um, Cell-cultured meat. Yeah, so um, in your book, it ends at the end of 2019. you know, I love how you, you center um, Josh Tetrick as like the sort of uh, protagonist of this book because he's a really interesting character. Um, but I mean, I, I guess we can all, you know, know that it's 2020 right now and yeah. Just Foods, uh, formerly known as Hampton Creek, you know, I haven't seen a big press release about their product mm-hmm. yet. Um, although, at the end of your book, he was very much hoping for it to be out. I mean, even in 2018. So right. So the background story mm-hmm. that's not, well, you know, it is kind of mentioned in the book, but, you know, sort of the behind the scenes aspect of this was, you know, Josh felt extremely confident that cell cultured meat, let's just say cultured meat from here on, because it's probably the easiest term, but like that cultured <laughs> meat made by his company would be on the market somewhere in the world by the end, I think, of, of by the beginning of 2018. And so when I started my reporting, it was really working up to this moment that we were sort of anticipating. Uh-huh. And then that date kind of came and went. 
And so we kept going, hoping that like, okay, maybe it'll, maybe it'll come out in the next year. And, and by 2019, it still hadn't made it out. Um, and then what really sort of came surfaced was that this isn't really about the science and technology of making sort of a basic cell cultured meat product. This is more what's stopping cultured meat from getting out into the world has everything to do with sort of the regulatory bodies in different countries, sort of the, mm. the USDAs or FDAs around the world, um, sort of giving the makers of cultured meat the green light to go forward. Um, obviously, there's lots of red tape in the regulatory world, and the companies that are in this space are all kind of trying to navigate that. As soon as a green light happens somewhere in the world, and it will probably be either Singapore or the United Arab Emirates or Israel, maybe the US, uh, potentially Russia. Um, as soon as that green light is sort of lit, you're going to see basic cultured meat products going out. When I say basic, I mean kind of like chicken nuggets, chicken tenders, mm-hmm. maybe like a hot dog or something, meatballs, things that you can imagine as being ground meat uh, products because those are the easiest kind to grow. Yeah. Well, I I actually heard about KFC de- developing lab-grown chicken. Speak of the devil. Um, yeah. Chicken nuggets, I think? So, yeah, so KFC has partnered with a company that... KFC's Russia division has partnered with a company uh, that is based in Moscow. <clears throat> has a couple of um, U.S. outposts as well. It's called um, 3D Bioprinting Solutions. A really sexy food name they do lots of different things <laughs> printing food sounds really appetizing uh, yes it does <laughs> and so what they're doing is kfc is partnering with this company to sort of develop a hybrid product which is going to be sort of a plant-based mixed with cultured meat product which is actually probably what we'll all see first it's like creating a 100 percent cultured oh. meat product is great uh-huh. um but the reality is that we will probably see like a mix of like that beyond meat plus some cultured meat because wow. you know sort of That's you think wild. about the plant-based products that are out there a lot of them can mimic that sort of uh texture of meat in a lot mm. of ways mm-hmm. but the taste isn't quite on point oh i see Seems so i something think to kind of pull it over the yeah you think it's sort <laughs> of like line. yeah definitely this is sort of like a if you take a think of it as like a staircase to like the the final goal mm. the next step up is like this hybrid product and then they'll probably have like the full 100 percent culture but anyways kfc russia is partnering with this company um that's also in russia to develop this hybrid chicken nugget and they're wow. hoping that that product would be out in the next like year or so they're hoping to get their sort of final prototype finished and ready for testing uh in the next couple of months so it's exciting news. It definitely wow. was a splash in the last couple of weeks um, on this whole cultured meat world um, because you don't really think of like any companies in Russia as being at the forefront. But here we have, you know, one that's really uh, joined the pack of companies that may be getting this out first. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's so much, uh, I, it brings to mind to me the Taco Bell meat that's like half soy crumbles and half meat. <laughs> Something yeah, like that. exactly. Um, yeah. So funny. Um, we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude, though, and we'll be right back to wrap up the interview. Today's program is brought to you by Emmy Cheese. 
specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and heritage. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of small farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for being the number one importer of Swiss Gruyere in the United States, in addition to many other specialty cheeses, including premium Kaltbach cave-age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Okay, we're back chatting with Chase Purdy. He's the author of Billion Dollar Burger, in inside big tech's race for the future of food a lot of high stakes here um so chase we were just talking about some recent developments in the world of uh fast food um but uh just to just to back up a little bit um can you tell us why you decided to focus on josh tetrick and the just foods his company it's a you know san francisco startup um vegan food company uh Folks might remember, actually, the big uh, big news stories back in the day, of, yeah. I think 2014, when um, Just Mayo was launched, and mm-hmm. they got sued by Unilever. Um, you, can, you can just maybe yeah. just uh, reiterate that, and, and yeah, why, why focus this book on, on them? Right, so there are over 30 companies around the world in this space, each of them unique in their own particular way, and... You know, the focus on Tetric for me was like a natural choice because, you know, I mean, to to put it extremely bluntly, like of all the companies and all their different unique things that make them, um, that put them in an enviable spot to finish this first, Josh is the only CEO, Just is the only company that is actually already a food company. So they mm. have sort of relationships built in the supply chains. They have a product out on shelves. Mm-hmm. They know how to work with the, the FDA. Um, and so- they have a vegan brand. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, like a okay. big plus for them. And so, you know, if any company was going to win the edible space race to get cultured meat out, Just would certainly be one that would have a fighting chance of doing that. Um, Josh also has like the, he has sort of, um, if you're a bus- if you read business news and food business news, then you're most likely familiar with Josh Tetrick. He did sort of famously, um, several years back go up against when he was a much smaller company, he went up against Unilever. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons why, um, his company has really succeeded is because it be- kind of gotten this David versus Goliath fight with Unilever mm-hmm. and won. Um, and then... You know, he's also running one of the first Silicon Valley unicorns, food technology unicorns, uh, which means, you know, the company was valued at over a billion dollars. So he's been in the news. He's an interesting character. He has sort of very, his company has certain strengths that make it, you know, a front runner in this space. And in my eyes, Josh was always like very kind of flawed. And I think that hopefully comes out in the story because... He's not sort of this um, natural business leader that you would maybe expect coming out of Silicon Valley or being being in the food world. I mean, he 
has this background of not knowing. He's very human in a lot of ways. Like he didn't, he hasn't known his whole life what he wants to do. He, in fact, has, mm-hmm. you know, kind of grew up being pulled in multiple directions. He went to law school, found out it wasn't really for him. He actually worked for a pretty prestigious law firm briefly in Virginia and just absolutely did not work out for him there. He got fired from that job. He worked in nonprofit world in different countries in Africa. He's sort of partnered on UN project projects uh, in Africa. Didn't really find a lot of um, satisfaction in those roles. He's been sort of a lost sort of person for a while. And, and that really interested me because I think that, you know, for a lot of people, it's kind of tough to like know what you want to do when you grow up, even mm-hmm. when you're already grown up. Um, and he sort of embodies that sort of narrative as well. And I, I really, that sort of drew me to him because he's just not a straightforward person. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I mean, not, he's not a straightforward person in the sense that he is a clear story you can tell. Like some, for some people, it's like, I've always been interested in science. I went to school and learned, like was interested in science and I grew up and now I'm working in science, growing cultured meat. That's not his story. And mm-hmm. that, that was interesting. I found it compelling. Yeah, I love how you portray the human side of this um, really well in this book. I mean, if we are seeing, if this is like the beginning stages of literally the future of food, right? This is like, Mm -hmm. this is like science fiction in play uh, (laughs) at its early chapters. Um, You know, it, it is really interesting to see that these folks didn't, you know, kind of stumbled into this field. Yeah, Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, and out of some, you know, passion and um, various reasons, actually. Um, but a little bit about the uh, the godfather, um, the yeah. Dutch godfather of this particular science that made cellular uh, cell cultured meat possible. What was his deal? So I actually, this may be my favorite aspect uh, <laughs> of the reporting, um, was that you know, you, when you think of cultured meat, you might think very science fiction-y things. I mean, Margaret um, Atwood wrote about it in Oryx and Crake. Uh, it's appeared in, in Gibson's sort of the Neuromancer. Neuromancer. It's, you know, there, there are lots of cases. Winston Churchill wrote about it a long time ago even. Um, but it actually isn't necessarily the stuff of science fiction. It was an idea that really was pushed to the forefront by this this Dutch man who grew up in Indonesia, which was at the time a Dutch colony. His name mm-hmm. is Willem van Elen. And he, um, you know, the long story short of him is that he was a, during World War II, he was captured by the Japanese and he was in a prisoner of war camp. Mm-hmm. And when he was in, you know, a prisoner of war camp and being touted across the Indonesian islands by Japanese forces, he witnessed a lot of you know, the horrors of starvation. He sort of watched the people he was with go mad from starvation. And whenever World War II ended, when he was rescued, uh, he went back to the Netherlands and he went to medical school. And while there, he was going through different um, through different rooms. And, and as his daughter tells the story, Willem van Elen's now passed away, but as his daughter tells the story, he walked by a room and was watching cultured meat being grown for medical purposes. You know, you can use this for skin regeneration for burn victims and things like that. And people were marveling Mm. at sort of how this worked in that room. And and he basically thought like, yeah, but can you eat it? Mm -hmm. Um, And he immediately connected culturing cells 
to growing meat as a way of like stopping global hunger. Mm-hmm. And he spent the rest of his life uh, sometimes, you know, being very, very um, upset at how slow it, how slowly it took to get this stuff kind of off the ground. But he spent the rest of his life really, really pushing to make cultured meat a thing. He he actually put together the first consortium of researchers and scientists to to make this a reality. And sort of in that consortium was Mark Post, who we spoke about earlier as the oh. Dutch scientist to really introduce this in London. Um, and yeah, so Willem van Elen, you know, worked his whole life to get this to get this out. And now his daughter, uh, Ira van Elen, has kind of picked up the mantle and she's working um, to do the same thing. And luckily she's able to see these products and taste these products and it's at a different stage for her, but she's, she's really very adamantly pushing this as well. So it's a family affair for the Van Elens. I love that. And I love that you've run around the country meeting all these people and, uh, collecting their stories for this book. Uh, yeah, it was very privileged to be able to go to the Netherlands and to Israel and to uh, across the U S several times to like talk to all these people to look at their laboratories, to taste some of the meat, to get an idea of the brains and the cool, you know, imaginations of the people who are actually trying to make this real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something you take for granted now that we're not traveling, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> I'm glad you did this book when, you know, uh, when, when you did. Yeah. Um, I, what do you hope folks take away from this book? aside from a very exciting read? You know, I think what I really hope is that this gives people um, the language that they need to be able to talk about this product with Mm -hmm. their friends and their family. I Mm -hmm. hope that it gives them... I think that cell-cultured meat offers some potentially amazing tools to combat climate change and animal welfare issues and to tackle some of the systemic issues in our current meat system that have been exposed by COVID-19. I mean, think about 35,000 plus meatpacking workers are sick um, and yeah. right now, and that's like, it's a very serious issue that affects actually mostly people of color. 87, mm-hmm. I think, percent of those people in meatpacking plants are people of color who have been impacted are people of color. This technology is something to really maybe reshape how we approach meat and while it is so optimistic and while it is so promising it still does present a lot of ethical and interesting hurdles it challenges the way that we think about how we eat and we should be questioning these companies at every step because as aphoristic as they are about all the benefits you know eating cultured meat isn't something we can sort of really wrap our heads around very easily. And so mm-hmm. I hope that the, the book offers us all the tools to be skeptical, be thoughtful, and to have real conversations with each other about how we feel about this. Um, maybe it sort of gives like that first sort of, um, I hope it just sort of gives the vocabulary to, to really s- jumpstart some of those conversations because we should be having them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, thank you so much for, for doing that. I, I think that it's a wonderful book. And I just remembered, you know, a lot of, a lot of people's first reactions to this industry is ew, right? That's the ew factor. <laughs> you know, I don't actually know about that. I think for some oh, really? people, I think for okay. some people that's true. I, okay. what I, what I found in my reporting 
which was, you know, I thought the same thing when I first started. But people are actually, in my experience, of course, it's all anecdotal. They're actually really curious about it. Um, Even my grandmother, you know, who I talked to, you know, one of the interesting things, the earliest interview I did for this book was actually, I was talking to my grandma on the phone, my Nana, and I was just Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, working on this book about cell cultured meat, what do you think, or beef and meat, whatever, what do you think? And the idea of cultured meat didn't really phase her. The first thing yeah. she jumped to, she was like, you know, I stopped buying beef, ground beef at the grocery store because it smells weird now. And I was <sighs> like, what are, you, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, I just think, she's like, the way it's processed doesn't smell the way it used to. So I've started buying bison meat. And I was just like, wow, okay. So like, you're not phased by the cultured meat thing, but you immediately talk about the issues you have with the meat you're, that's available to you. Um, and then in a later discussion with her, when the book was almost done, I, I was talking to her about cultured meat and she's skeptical, but she said, you know, like I'd try it. And if I think like, if I can get my grandmother to admit to being like curious enough to try cultured meat, then I imagine there's a pretty big segment of people out there who will also be curious enough to try it once. And I think that that's kind of the ultimate moment for cultured meat is like, what will that first bite be and how Mm. will people walk away from it? Because I bet most people are willing to try anything once. And if it has the same taste and flavor and texture, if they think that and know that it's safe and if it's economical or at the honest way to being very economical, then... I think cultural meat has a good shot. I think that it sort of, and that ultimately, that curiosity, I think, will overpower that sort of perceived you factor. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And, you know, more choices, all the power to that. Yeah, totally. Um, awesome. So looks like that's about all the time we have, but thank you so much for sharing more about your book. And thank you f- so much for, you know, sharing this in-depth information throughout the book. Um, I hope everyone gets their hands on Million Dollar Burger. It just came out last month from Random House. Um, and you can check out Chase's work at Chase Party. Is that right? Yeah. Or... Yeah. Okay. You can see, yeah, see work at Chase, or at Chase Party on Twitter, chaseparty.com. And yeah. Um, and you have a and... newsletter, right? I do. Yeah. I have a, a very nerdy cellular agriculture newsletter. Uh, through Substack that's called Pluripotent. <laughs> and awesome. uh, if you want to deep dive into some very, you know, the, the particulars of cell ag, that's uh, maybe a place to, to go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chase. It was great having you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really love reporting the book, and, and it's been it's so fun to talk about the subject. I hope that people find it as interesting as I do. Absolutely. Um, Thanks so much. Today's engineer is Amanda Wang. And thank you, everyone, at Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.